I do pray that in the next uh, session and then the main service that follows and that in all the classrooms that are meeting with the various groups and the various kids that your word may be aptly spoken and the Holy Spirit might take it and apply it to our lives. We do pray, Father, that we would not just be going through a religious ritual. Jesus uh, specifically told us when we pray we're not to do vain repetition as do the pagans. But we're to seek from you and allow your eternal word to change us. We pray, Lord, that we would leave this place changed either in the sanctification stage of our faith or maybe some are here that have never trusted in Christ personally. We pray for many, many salvations today. We know, Lord, that this type of thing that we're asking for is not something that a human teacher can inculcate. We are dependent upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught in the upper room that the Spirit would come and guide us into all truth. And we need guidance today, Lord. We are like lost, lost sheep without a shepherd. And so we pray that your word would give us that guidance. We pray specifically for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of God, whereby we can understand all things. In preparation, Lord, for that ministry, we're going to just take a few moments of silence to do personal confession towards you if need be, not to restore our position, but we do understand that in our sinful selves we have the ability to inhibit our enjoyment and fellowship of you. And when that happens, we really can't receive what you have for us in your word. We remain thankful, Lord, for the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're thankful for the fact, Lord, that Your provision for us is so comprehensive that not only does it give us permanent and eternal position with You, but it restores broken fellowship. I do pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would have his way today and that at the end of the day, here at Sugarland Bible Church, that your name would be lifted up and glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Well, very good. Let's um, take our Bibles, if we could, and open them to Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Uh, last Sunday we started a new series in Sunday school. I guess it's not really a new series. It's just we had planned to teach both Thessalonian books. So with First Thessalonians under our belt, we're now moving into Second uh, Thessalonians. And you might recall that last week we had the opportunity to introduce the book. 
we went through these introductory matters. Um, we passed out a packet of information. Um, it would probably, you guys would do well if you brought that every week just to take notes on. But I think it's available in, on the table as you pick up the bulletin on the way in. So when we started 2 Thessalonians, we said, who wrote it? And the answer is Paul. Who was the book written to? The Thessalonian church that Paul had started on his second missionary journey. He's writing to them probably um, six months to a year after he founded that church. Where is he writing from? Corinth. I'll show you that on the map in just a second. What's the date of this book? A.D. 51. So it's a very early book. This is only Paul's third letter. What's the occasion of the book? Well, we have a fraudged, uh, fraudged, there you go. That's fraudged is like, I was trying to say fraud and forged together. So we can come up with a new vocabulary word today. A forged and fraudulent email. I'm trying to contemporize it a little bit. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, telling them that the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, has started, which set off a theological earthquake in Thessalonica because Paul, when he was with them, and Paul in his first letter taught them the opposite. He said you wouldn't be in the tribulation period, but suddenly this correspondence comes from Paul saying you're in the tribulation period. So the whole the whole Thessalonica church is in a state of panic. Which proves, in a sense, when you think about it, that Paul did teach them pre-tribulationalism. That you will escape the tribulation period. Because if a forged letter came in saying, you're in the tribulation period, they wouldn't be upset about it. They would be saying, this is exactly what you told us, Paul. The book has three parts to it. If you like the letter C, chapter 1 is he's commending them for their growth. In spite of persecution, chapter 2, he's correcting them. He's setting them straight on the doctrine of the end times, explaining to them why they're not in the tribulation period. And chapter 3 is the consequences If you have a a warped view of the end times, and many today do, then you start making life choices that are inappropriate. So he deals with that in chapter 3. So the message of the book is continuing to work for the Lord as Christians while we are waiting on the Lord. The proper balance between working and waiting And Paul's purpose in writing is correcting their bad eschatology so that they might live correctly. So one of the great truths you can learn as a Christian is orthodoxy, correct belief, precedes orthopraxy, correct practice. You'll recognize that word ortho when you go to the orthodontist. They're correcting your mouth, something in your mouth. So orthodoxy just means correct belief. 
And once you have correct beliefs, it typically leads to orthopraxy, correct practice. So that's what this uh, little book of Second Thessalonians is all about. And so we start here in chapter 1 with the first C where he is commending them. And so here's kind of a rough outline, if you will, of chapter 1. We've got a reminder of grace, verses 1 and 2, thanksgiving, verses 3 and 4, a reminder of their kingdom identity, verse 5. The fact that people are persecuting them. I mean, who's persecuting them? The same crowd that persecuted Paul when he was there in Thessalonica. They, they drove him out of Thessalonica into Corinth. So in verses 6 through 10, it's easy to get sort of upset, you know, that people seem to have the upper hand over you as a Christian when they're unbelievers and they're persecuting you. But Paul says, don't worry about that. God is going to repay those persecutors in eternal judgment forever. Verses 6 through 10. And then verses 11 and 12 is his prayer that they would continue to progress in their growth in spite of persecution. So that's kind of a fast layout, if you will, of the first chapter where he is commending them. So let's go ahead and start with verses 1 and 2 where he reminds them about grace. He says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Now that's our big hint that this book, like the first book, was actually written in Corinth. Because those three names are mentioned in Acts 18, verse 5, as being all together at the same time. Acts 18, verse 1, it's, it's very clear the context is Corinth. It says, after these things he left Athens and went to Corinth. And then verse 5 of Acts 18 says, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So there's the big three. Uh, Silas is another name for Silvanus, Timothy and Paul, all together in Corinth. So you sort of have to put these Pauline letters together with the book of Acts. Um, it's kind of like the book of Acts is the skeleton And you have to study the book of Acts and put Paul's letters into their proper place. So Paul wrote this letter from Corinth. And it was written pretty quick after he wrote the first letter. So the first letter and the second letter are written almost back to back. There's probably about six months to a year at the most between those two letters writing from Corinth. And then you look at the rest of this verse, verse 1, 2 Thessalonians 2, chapter 1, and it says, To the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he identifies his audience as the Thessalonians. Where is Thessalonica? It's just up north there. Uh, that, was a, that was a church Paul brought into existence on his second missionary journey. So the big picture looks like this, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, missionary journey number two, writing from uh, Corinth, which is the circle below 
up north to the Thessalonian Christians, to a church that he himself had planted. And it's really important to pay attention. I mean, obviously you, you pay attention to the whole Bible. But to interpret it right, you really have to pay attention to the first few verses in any book because usually that will tell you what the book is about based on the audience. So when you look at the second part of verse 1, it says, To the church, so these are Christians, of the Thessalonians, in God, now look at this, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That word our is very significant because Paul is saying, I'm saved, our Father, you're saved as well. So he's uh, identifying with his audience. He doesn't say, my God, and then act like the people that he's talking to are unsaved. He says, our Father. God can't be someone's father unless they're a Christian. If a person is not a Christian, then their relationship to God is he's your judge. But the moment a person trusts in Christ as their Savior, the whole relationship changes and God now becomes their Father. He is no longer your judge because Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago took our judgment in our place. So the fact that he is saying our Father indicates that this group that he's addressing are Thessalonian believers. And once you have that figured out, you start to see that this is not a book about justification. This is not a book about how to become a Christian. This is a book about how to grow as a Christian. So here is something that we allude to frequently, the three tenses of salvation. Uh, Salvation in three time zones. Um, I think we actually have a little booklet on our rack out there explaining this by Pastor Dennis Roxer of Duluth Bible Church. It's one of the most important things you could ever learn as a Christian because it helps you sort the mail. What verses go with what? So justification is the past tense of our salvation when we're saved from sin's penalty at a moment in time, a split second the moment you put your faith in Christ. And that's why save is used in the past tense in certain passages, like Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, and Titus 3, verse 5. And at that point, although God loves us as we are, He loves us too much to leave us as we are. So He moves us into the second phase of our salvation, which is progressive sanctification, where unlike justification, which takes place in a nanosecond, progressive sanctification is a lifelong process. And that's why save is used in the present tense in verses like Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where we are gradually being delivered from sin's power as God's people, as we learn our resources in Christ and start to rely upon those by faith, moment by moment, and make proper decisions consistent with those resources. 
So someone can be born but have growth problems. But the fact that they're having growth problems doesn't mean they haven't been born. Being born is a done deal. But now God says mature. Uh, Take in your proper vitamins, nutrients, food groups, and, and mature as a Christian. So that second phase of salvation is only given to the Christian. And that's who Paul is addressing here. That's why he says, our Father. He's not trying to get these people saved. They already are saved. He's trying to get them to grow. And then just to kind of complete the chart as you move to the right there, the third phase of our salvation is glorification, where we're delivered from sin's presence in a a moment. So justification and glorification are... Uh, instantaneous events. All you have to do to be justified is to trust what Christ did for you 2,000 years ago. All you have to do to be glorified is to die. Or be raptured if we're the rapture generation, which I can't promise we will be. I think we will be, but I don't know that for sure. And that's why save is used in the future tense in Romans 5 verse 10. So one of the battles you face when you study any book of the Bible or any area of Scripture is you try to sort the mail and figure out what part of this equation is this given book addressing. And Thessalonians is primarily addressing the middle phase of our salvation, which is our growth or our sanctification. If you want a great book on justification, I would recommend to you John's Gospel which is written to those who have never believed, John says at the end of his gospel. So you approach the Bible differently depending on the need and depending upon what the book is designed to address. If you're dealing with someone in your family that is unsaved and they want to investigate the claims of Christ and they don't know what book of the Bible to study, I would recommend that you would recommend to them John, because John is set up for them to teach unbelievers how to become believers. If you're dealing with people with a very confused eschatology that are Christians and are making bad life choices um, because of that bad eschatology, eschatology, of course, is a fancy word, but just means the study of the end then I would recommend the book of 2 Thessalonians. You'll notice here it says, To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice that he mentions here two members of the Trinity. We believe that there is one God. We are monotheistic. The Muslims have no understanding of this doctrine. They think we're teaching three gods. They call us the three God Christians, meaning they don't really understand what we're teaching. Um, We believe that God is one, monotheism. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And yet, as you progress through the New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, you start to see that there's a plurality within the Godhead. 
I mean, that plurality is evident as early as Genesis 1, around verses 26 through 28, where God says, let us make man in our image. So you say, hmm, monotheism, but within the Godhead there seems to be a plurality. And as you continue to move through the Bible, you'll see that the Father is called God. You'll see the Son is called God. And the passage that we're going to start studying once Wednesday night reconvenes in September. We'll be moving into Acts 4 and Acts 5. And there's a very clear passage there that the Holy Spirit is God. And you look back at this and you say, well, I don't understand this. I mean, the Son's God, the Holy Spirit's God, the Father's God, and yet Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says there's one God. Well, this is the mystery of the Trinity that we believe in one God. But He has manifested Himself. He has expressed Himself in three separate personages. The Son is unique in His Sonness. The Father is unique in His Fatherness. The Holy Spirit is completely unique in His Spiritness. Three separate personages. Yet at the same time, they all share in the same essence of deity. Deity being one God. And you say, well, Pastor, I need some more explanation on that. Well, if you figure it all out, maybe you should be explaining it to me because this is like something that's beyond my pay grade to really understand, let alone teach. And yet this is, this is what the Scripture says. It's, um, it's a beautiful doctrine. It's a wonderful doctrine. It's something you'll spend your whole life as a Christian contemplating. God doesn't try to prove it. Hey, here's three steps to prove or something. He just says, this is how it is. I am one. And yet, within the oneness of God, there are three separate personages, each sharing fully in deity. But they are completely distinct and separate in their personage or their personality. And so this is why the Apostle Paul typically begins letters by referencing the different parts of the Trinity. Here two of the parts of the Trinity are mentioned, the Father and then the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on from there, uh, beginning in verse um, 2. He says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's explaining to them, the Thessalonians, why they have the standing before God that they have. The reason they have right standing before God is they have something from God called grace. The Greek word for grace is charis. And basically what it means is unmerited favor. It's favor coming to a person that they they do not deserve. It's um, it's a concept that's even deeper than mercy. Justice would be over here. Mercy would be in the middle. Grace would be over here. Justice is getting what you deserve. Lord, give me justice and give it to me right now. That's not the way I pray, by the way. If you're praying that way, I'm going to step out of the way because you'll probably get hit by a lightning bolt any second. 
So that's what justice is. Mercy is the punishment coming to you is held back. Grace is even something beyond mercy where you start to receive. It's not just the punishment is withheld. That would be great enough. But you have a bunch of things coming to you that you you know, you, do, you didn't earn or deserve. So Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, We are blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Every single blessing that God wants to give you, He's already given to you on a spiritual basis. Your account, spiritually speaking, is totally maxed out. And when you think about that, that's not mercy. Mercy is just not going to hell. It certainly isn't justice. But it's even beyond uh, mercy itself. It's grace. And that's what gives us the right standing before God. This is why I have an ability as a New Testament Christian to approach the throne of God in prayer with boldness. If God was dealing with me on the basis of justice, I would not have that ability. If God was dealing with me on the basis of mercy, I would not have that ability. But I have that ability because God is dealing with me on the basis of grace. Because God is dealing with me on the basis of grace, I have 100% no doubt that if I were to die, die today, I'd go right into his presence. I have total 100% assurance of salvation. And the reason I think that way is I understand that my standing before God is based on unmerited favor. If it was somehow based on my performance then some days I would think I have the assurance of salvation. Some days I I would think I don't have the assurance of salvation. But because God has decided to deal with me, deal with lost human beings who receive his free gift on the basis of grace, the whole salvation picture does not ride on our shoulders. And because it doesn't ride on our shoulders and instead rides completely on the shoulders of Jesus, that's how you know with 100% assurance that if you were to die, you'd go right into his presence. That's how you can go boldly into the throne room of God. So if you don't understand grace, then you don't understand assurance. If you don't understand grace, you don't understand boldness in prayer. But once you understand who you are by divine decree that you've received this grace, uh, charis in the Greek, that becomes the basis for how we pray, uh, how we think about assurance, because that's, that's our standing before God. So that's why Paul begins with grace. He says, grace to you and peace. Now, peace is a different Greek word. It's the word irene, as in irenic. It's the opposite of war. War in Greek is polemos, as in polemical. But this is speaking of irenic. Uh, Sometimes a woman's name is Irene. That's where that comes from, this Greek word irene, meaning peace. 
And you'll notice the order here. The order is very significant. First comes grace. Look at verse 2. Then comes peace. No charis, no irene. No grace, no peace. We have peace with God because He has given us grace. There are a couple of kinds of peace in the Bible. The first one is positional. You'll see it there in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The conflict between you and God has been called off. It's a wonderful doctrine called reconciliation. The Greek word for reconciliation is dialasso. Two parties are at war with each other, and now they're uh, reconciled. It's the same kind of thing that we're going to see as we're traveling through Genesis in the main service. Jacob and Esau at war with each other. The the two come into a peaceful relationship. That's uh, dia lasso. That's what's happened to us because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we've received that blood by faith as a free gift. Because if a person does not have this peace, they remain an enemy of God. You say, well, that's a hard doctrine, Pastor. Why are you teaching that? Well, I'm teaching it because it's not my doctrine. It's what your Bible says. Romans 5, verse 10. This is describing us before we came to Christ. For if while we were enemies, that was my status before I came to Christ, I was an enemy of God, we were reconciled to God, dialasso, through the death of His Son. Having much more been reconciled, we shall be saved, that's glorification, by His life. So before I get saved, I'm an enemy of God. The day comes, I hear the gospel, I trust in the provision of Jesus, and now I have peace with God. The state of warfare between me and God has been called off. It's not anything I earn or deserve. I have that because God has decreed to give me grace. That's why grace in the Bible is always going to come before peace. So that's what we mean by positional peace. But there's another kind of peace that's at your fingertips also. This is what I would call experiential peace, which is the spirit-filled capacity to experience inner calmness when a person is going through great adversity in their life. Jesus spoke of it. In John 14, verse 27, in the upper room, when he said, Peace, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And I know there he's speaking of experiential peace because he concludes that verse by saying, Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. So one of the things that we do um, as fallen human beings when circumstances aren't lining up the way we think they should line up is we just hit the panic button 
and we have all kinds of inner turmoil. And Jesus talks here about an irene or a peace that's available to the Christian that the world does not give. In fact, the world doesn't even know it. In fact, when you experience it, the world, I'll define the world here as your unsaved friends and family members and co-workers will not understand why you're calm in the midst of your problem. They will not understand it. In fact, they will start to get somewhat resentful towards you because they're walking according to the world. The world says, I can have peace as long as circumstances on the outside are good. But, I mean, that's fine. But as we know, things have a tendency to fall apart. Have you guys noticed that in your life? (laughs) So what happens to the peace or the irene? It disappears. Jesus is talking about a peace that a believer has and can experience when everything is going wrong. Paul talked about this in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. He says, be anxious for nothing. And as a Christian, I know I'm not walking in this peace when I'm anxious about different things. You can't experience anxiety and the internal peace of God simultaneously. One of the two is going to rule the day. So when I have an anxious mind, I just go to the Lord and say, Lord, you know, I have this problem. I'm going to trust you with it. I'm not going to try to figure it out. I'm not going to try to manipulate my way out of it. And it's just amazing how the calmness of God will take over when we do that. This is the the peace that the world does not give. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer. Oh, maybe that's the problem. I'm not praying the way I should. I'm not giving it to the Lord in prayer the way I should. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Supplication is you're asking God to supply or fill a need. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And here's the result. The peace of God which surpasses what? All comprehension will guard. Remember, Paul is chained to a military elite member of the Praetorian Guard when he wrote this. So he's probably using the different parts of the armor like he does in Ephesians 6 as illustrations in his writings. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart. The military of God takes over. And stands in front of your heart and says to anxiety and Satan and the demons and the flesh and the world, uh, you can't have access to this person today. Because they're, they're trusting in the Lord. But then I stop trusting in the Lord and then Satan gets his way in my life, see? So it's talking about a peace which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The reason it's called surpasses all comprehension is because that's what Jesus said about it in the upper room. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So the world looks at that and they don't understand it because they can't experience it because it only comes from the Lord. 
That's why they're always trying to fill their life with something that will give it to them. You know, I'll just I'll just binge watch movies all day. Anything to get my mind off my troubles. I'll just go into overeating or trying to find it at the bottom of a of a bottle or I'll go into drug abuse or I know what I'll do. I'll try to acquire so much material wealth I won't need anything anymore. Or I'll try to become so popular and powerful that this emptiness in my heart will be filled. So basically what, what it is is people are seeking what only is available in God through artificial substitutes. And that's why the world is miserable. That's why Jesus said to the woman at the well, who was trying to drown her problems in, a, I would think, a promiscuous lifestyle, given her five husbands, and the one that she was with she wasn't even married to. Jesus basically says to her, if you drink from that water, meaning analogizing natural water to what she was trying to fill the void in her life with, if you drink from that water, you'll be thirsty again. But if you drink from living water, you'll never thirst again. Because he's speaking of spirit-empowered resources that are available to the Christian allowing us to walk through life's problems without looking at alcohol or drug abuse or whatever the sin of choice is in our lives as some sort of crutch. As a Christian, you don't need those things anymore because you have something higher than yourself that is now living inside of you. The peace of God which transcends all understanding. The peace that the world does not understand. Over in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, it says this of Jesus, On that day when evening came, He said to them, Let us go over to the other side. The other side of the Sea of Galilee, in other words. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already filling up with water, in other words. Which, the when you study the Sea of Galilee, I mean, I've been there many times it's just a wonderful experience to be on the same sea that Jesus was on. The way it's situated uh, in terms of the mountain range, and there are people that could explain a lot better than me, but it's beneath and the mountains are around, and it's an optimal site for a storm to come in just like that. And that's what happened. So... When the Bible talks about these storms overtaking the disciples on the Sea of Galilee and you actually get the explanation and you visit the Sea of Galilee, you start to see that the Bible, the stories or the history that happened in the Bible is credibly backed up by 
everything we know about geology, geography, archaeology. That's why as we're moving in through, through Genesis, I keep mentioning the Nuzi tablets and the Code of Hammurabi because I'm trying to get people to understand that this is not just a book of fiction. These are actual historical events that transpired. And so that was the circumstance. Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern of the boat, of course, asleep. (laughs) And then it says on the cushion. I'm always wondering how big was the cushion, what size was it, what color was it. The Bible doesn't tell me. And they woke him up and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? In other words, they don't have the peace that he has. And it's all, they're almost resentful towards it. Because their peace is based on circumstances. Circumstances just fell apart. They were in a storm. You get the impression that Jesus set this whole thing up. I mean, wouldn't he know the storm was coming? But they got on the boat anyway. He's the one that initiated the trip, and he's the one that fell asleep. He's trying to get them to see something here. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He got up, rebuked the wind and the sea, and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down. And it became perfectly calm. So just like that, he fixed the external problem, which was not his goal. That may have been a goal, but that was not his primary goal, because now he's going to deal with the internal problem. He's just calmed externally a storm. Now he's got to deal with the storm raging in the hearts of the disciples, who obviously did not have the peace of God. So storm B, I think, is really what he's after here in terms of a teaching moment. He said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Well, look at that. Faith and fear, they're opposites. When I'm trusting in the Lord, I'm really not afraid. When I'm afraid, I'm not really trusting in the Lord. I can't experience both simultaneously. That's why Paul, when he's talking about the peace of God, he's not dealing with positional peace. He's dealing with experiential peace. And he basically wants them to experience it by taking their prayers to the Lord by way of supplication. They have to start, they have to start walking in faith at some point. I mean, you have to start believing the promises of God at some point. I mean, I mean, at some point, knowledge, as wonderful as it is, has to start becoming uh, incarnational, relevant, applicational in my life, or it's just head knowledge. So he's, he's telling the disciples, the reason you're in panic palace is you, you just aren't, you're not believing me. And then I like verse uh, 41. You think that would calm them down. But verse 41 says, they became very much afraid. (laughs) Now they're more afraid. And said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I mean, they're, they're fearful of a storm. He calms the storm and they're 
looking at the one that they're dealing with that was asleep during the storm, that just woke up from his slumber on a cushion. (laughs) And just like that, he says, hush, and the storm's silenced. And then they don't know who to be more afraid of. Should I be afraid of the storm or should I be more of afraid of the one who has the power over the storm? So I think this is all pedagogical. I mean, these are the guys that are going to, in the book of Acts, carry the message of Jesus into the unsaved pagan world, basically. And he's trying to teach them through this event um, this reality called experiential peace. By the way, the same Jesus asleep on the cushion in the storm, where is he currently living? Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. You mean the same Jesus that was asleep in the midst of the storm is now resident within me permanently via the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Is that what you're saying, Pastor? It's not what I'm saying. It's what the Bible says. What I say doesn't really matter. It's what God's Word says. So that's why when you're going through a storm... And you say, well, pastor, my life right now is really good. I'm not going through any storms. Well, cheer up. Your time will come. (laughs) We're all living in this same fallen, satanically energized world. Things are going to start going wrong somewhere. Um, The same Jesus that's asleep in the midst of the storm is the same Jesus that lives in you. And as you're going through a storm, you just sense something internally from God that says, trust me with this. I I know what I'm doing. Yeah, but Lord, I, this doesn't make any sense to me. Well, it didn't make any sense to the disciples either. When he said, let's go to the other side, and a storm comes, that made no sense to them. Because he's trying to teach them the walk of the Spirit, which inculcates experiential peace. He's trying to teach us the exact same lesson. You'll notice the source of all of this. Grace and peace to you. Again, he starts to articulate the different members of the triunity of God. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The only place you're going to get this is in Jesus. You will find positional peace and experiential peace in no other single source. You will not find it in a motivational speaker. You will not find it in someone who has the gift of gab. You will not find it in a bestseller. You will not find it in a drug. The only thing a drug or alcohol can do is sort of numb you up to the pain, but the pain is just a a symptom of the problem. You will not find it in some sort of substance abuse. You will not find it in having so much money or resources that this world has to offer that you don't have to trust God anymore. Materialism, you won't find it there. You only find it in Jesus. Positional peace and experiential peace is only available in Jesus Christ. 
Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in verses 3 and 4, and he begins to express, after he's reminded them of the grace that they have and their proper standing, he goes on now and he begins to express thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? For their development in faith and love despite persecution. So the crowd that pushed Paul out of Thessalonica down into Corinth was now turning on Paul's flock and persecuting them. That may have been one of the reasons why they were vulnerable to the fraud, the the forgery slash fraud indicating that they were in the tribulation period because they were being persecuted. And there's a lot of people like that in modern day theology. They argue that a lot of the distress that the church or the Christian is under means we're in the tribulation period. No, we are under temptations, little t, but the temptation capital T is yet future. We are under tribulations, little t, but the tribulation, capital T, is yet future. So don't confuse tribulations with the tribulation. We are under trials, little t, but the capital T trial is yet future. So the crowd that turned on Paul was now turning on Paul's flock. And they were panicked. But in spite of it, they continued to grow in faith and love. Paul is thanking the Lord for their development in faith and love in spite of persecution. Because the trials of life, really, when you, when you analyze it at the end of the day, they only can do one of two things to you. The first thing they can do to you is make you very bitter. How how dare this issue come into my life? And you just become resentful over it. Or it can make you better. You can say to the Lord, well, Lord, I didn't ask for this, but here we are. And I'm going to trust you through it. And you start to find an exponential growth rate during those times in your life. And whether it's bitter or better, I mean, that's that's your choice. That's my choice. There have been trials in my life that I've grown greatly through. There, there are others, I'm embarrassed to say, that I've looked to God with great resentment, acting as if he had no right to bring such and such into my life. God has every right to do anything in your life he wants. And when things are not shaping up the way you think they should be shaping up in the human sense of the world, it's either going to be bitterness or it's going to be betterness. As the saying goes, the same sun, S-U-N, that hardens is also the same sun that can melt. It's either going to make your heart hard or it's going to make your heart melt for the things of God. So this crowd, the Thessalonians, and these are brand new Christians, and, and Paul couldn't say, well, y'all need to read Romans now because there wasn't a Ro- book of Romans yet. There wasn't a book of Revelation yet. There's only This is only his third letter. So you're dealing with people with an incomplete New Testament 
who are going through problems and they're making a conscience choice to allow those problems to make them better instead of bitter. And Paul says, praise the Lord. And that's why he's thanking God for what's happening in their lives, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. And then you'll notice in verse 3, the word brethren, that's another indicator that he's speaking to Christians. Jesus defines the word brother brothers for us. When he was asked or told his mother and his brothers are waiting for you, and he said, who is my mother, who are my brothers, etc., etc., are not they the ones that do the will of my Father who is in heaven? In other words, there's um, a family that transcends physical families called the body of Christ. The moment you trust in Christ for salvation. So this is not a first tense salvation book. This is a middle tense salvation book. Verse 3, we ought to always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged. They have ever-increasing faith. They're, They're trusting God now more than when they were at the beginning. The interesting thing about faith is it's a little bit like a muscle If you don't use certain muscles in your body, they atrophy. Just try to go water skiing when you haven't done that for decades and you start to figure out there's some muscles here that I'm using that uh, I haven't used those in a long time. That's what faith is like. It's like one of those muscles that has to be continually exercised. If it's not continually exercised, it can't grow. So how does God take that faith muscle and develop it? He puts you in in circumstance after circumstance where it's almost like you're forced to trust him. If I don't trust him, then I'm just going to be a bitter, angry person. So I'm going to trust you, Lord. And God says, good, that's a good workout. Take a little rest. Let the soreness wear off a little bit. And then uh, Monday morning, I want to see you back in the gym. And he puts you through another circumstance. And so what's happening is your faith is increasing. It's not decreasing. It's increasing. Don't resist the pattern. Don't get mad at God for it. It's, It's the pattern in all of our lives. His goal for us is ever increasing faith. Trusting him more in 2023 than I trusted him in 2022. So their faith is increasing, and Paul is thankful for that. He says, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged. Now, what else is enlarging? And their love of each one of you toward one another grows ever Greater, Their love for each other is increasing. And it's not just love in general, it's love for one another. Love within the body. The book of Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 tells us that that ought to be a priority for us. Galatians 6 verse 10 says, So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people. 
And especially, and especially, even to those who are of the household of faith. Hey, charity starts at home. If we can't love each other, how in the world are we supposed to love an unsaved world? And by the way, Jesus also in the upper room, John 13 and 35, said by this, all men will know you are my disciples, not believers, but disciples. Disciple is someone that is growing in their faith. By this, I think this is in John 13, 35, all men will know you are my disciples by your love for, what's the rest of the verse? One another. So there this little Thessalonian church was. Without even the vantage point of a complete New Testament canon, going through immediate persecution as baby Christians. And here they are growing in the two most basic areas you can grow in as a saved person. They're growing in their faith and they're growing in their love for each other. And so what's Paul doing? He's a proud papa. You know, like parents that drive around and say, my kid is da-da-da-da-da. That's what Paul is with the Thessalonians. He's got the bumper sticker on the back of his donkey or whatever he he drove. And he's he's just proud as punch of these Thessalonians. Because he says it in verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. I go into church and after church after church and I, I keep talking about you guys because you've made a decision to grow in faith and love for each other through trials. And he goes on in verse 4 and he says, Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith while you're on a luxury cruise, whoops, doesn't say that, in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions in which you endure. So Paul's boasting about them because they're persevering in what? What does it say they're persevering in? Faith. I mean, they're going through trials. They're trusting God through the trials. They're becoming better in their Christianity and not bitter in their Christianity. And Paul says, I can't, I can't help but talking about you guys. I mean, you, you guys are unbelievable. I mean, the only reason you're experiencing what you're experiencing is because you have a relationship with Jesus. If you didn't have a relationship with Jesus, this exponential growth that currently I'm thanking the Lord for, I wouldn't see. And then verse 5, he mentions the kingdom. And since I wrote a 400-page book on the kingdom, I better not start talking about the kingdom at this point. So we'll pick it up in verse 5 next time. Father, we're grateful for your truth, grateful for your word, grateful for this uh, little three-chapter book of Second Thessalonians. Help us to be like them, Lord. Will you impress that upon us this week as we go through the ups and downs of living in a fallen world? 
Help us to not become bitter people. We have enough angry, bitter people. Help us to just trust your sovereignty and grow in faith and love and perseverance in the middle tense of our salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen.